0: Hello and welcome to the Hashtag Symbio podcast. I'm your host, Zishan Siddiqui, and I'm joined by the one and only Professor Drew Endy. Drew is a member of the bioengineering faculty at Stanford University. He's the president of the BioBricks Foundation and the co founder of iGem. Drew has served on the US National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity and the Committee on Science, Technology and Law. He currently serves on the World Health Organization's Smallpox Advisory Committee. Esquire magazine recognized Drew as one of the 75 most influential people of the 21st century. Before we dive into this episode, here's a quick PSA from Drew on vaccinations.
1: Like, there's two things I wish everybody understood. The first is the vaccine doesn't keep you from being infected it increases the likelihood that you'll survive an infection. All right. So, so somehow, somehow we've entered the year 2020 and 2021 and we've forgotten what vaccines do, right? So that's, that needs to be fixed. The other thing, which is very serious, which is not widely appreciated when there's a pathogen that an infectious disease that transmits prior to the onset of symptoms, evolution selects for mutations that are more transmissible as opposed to an infectious disease that transmits after or along with the onset of symptoms in which case evolution selects for reduction in the acuteness of the disease or symptoms to make it simple all right so you know look we had SARS version 1 we had MERS two earlier coronavirus outbreaks much more lethal but not full scale pandemic, right? Why easier to manage public health when you see the symptoms and and it's like, wow, like let's not go near that person, right? And um, also evolution favors attenuation. SARS-2, right? The one we're dealing with, totally different. And so not surprisingly, we're selecting for mutants that are more transmissible. And that's just gonna keep rolling. You know, like we're talking about the Delta, but how about the Lambda? You know, out of Peru and now going all over the place. And you know, like I wish people understood that. It's a more subtle thing. And and it makes this it makes this much trickier to get on top of. I wish we could remember the spirit of the smallpox eradication campaign and everybody yeah, all together, yeah. we're getting rid of this thing. Maybe that's what the iGEM community will lead to in the future, because everybody in the iGEM community understands this stuff and can respect and celebrate and help each other. And we can prepare for the next generation where we're just going to make it normal to get rid of infectious disease and make it obsolete, all of them.
0: And now let's dive right into the episode. Do you think Private companies hold the key to transform synbio over the next decade, or like, does the most transformative synbio research like lie outside academia? Now, the reason I ask this question is the first thought, one example, is like DeepMind's AlphaFold two software, and also like just the amount of money that and capital that is being raised by let's say Amaris, Ginkgo, etc. And also just with the so much of the design, build, test, learn cycle is are so automated right now and like all the cloud labs and just all that computational infrastructure. It's a lot easier for private companies to invest those millions of dollars needed for the, you know, development and integration required to make automation work. But yes, is the future of SynBio lie in the hands of
1: these private companies? A um, couple things in response. Now, have you heard of artificial intelligence?
0: Yes. <laughs>
1: okay. Now, do you go around to briefing that art int? Hey, let's talk about art int today. Art int, art int. Okay, so artificial intelligence gets shortened to AI. How come synthetic biology gets shortened to syn-bio? Why doesn't it get shortened to SB? Maybe people like being naughty. They like using the word syn. I prefer SB. You know, when we organize, the students in the lab and I organized the first conference on synthetic biology, we called it SB 1.0. Um, so not, not to be pedantic, but I feel like it's so, it, it, I think using AI as an example, like going art in, art in, art in, people are like, what are you talking about? Your question about for-profit corporations, does the future of SynBio, Sin future of art in, future of SB, SB, SB does, it, does it lie in for-profit? Depends on where you are. So if you're in a, a liberal or neoliberal capitalist economy most of the resourcing flows through capital that gets uh, organized by for-profit corporations. You know, like that's a reality for-profit corporations are a way of organizing people. A public benefit charity is a way of organizing people. The government is a way of organizing people. Uh, A religion is a way of organizing people. Each way we have in our society uh, of organizing people has superpowers and a kryptonite. Okay. Uh, Meaning like, you know, the vulnerability. Okay, uh, thinking of the Superman universe. So, so the, the, what's the superpower of a for-profit corporation? The superpower of a for-profit corporation is you can organize people with money. And so in a capitalist society, liberal economy, it's like pretty straightforward to organize people with money. Would you like some money? Do this, okay. Um, and so like it is literally the easiest way to organize people to do stuff, all right? Now, what's the weakness? What's the key vulnerability of a for-profit corporation? at some point, you have to have a viable ongoing relationship with money. You have to be earning money. <laughs> okay. So, so okay. So for an emerging technology, you know, starts with ideas and academic research and pie in the sky, moonshots and this and that, you know, that's great. But at, but at some point, because all of synthetic biology manifests globally, right, it's got to scale, it's got to scale in the quote, real world. And, and so for-profit corporations are going to be a very powerful platform for scaling, for organizing people with money to get this out there and, and having positive impact. But it's not gonna be sufficient, right? And um, let me give you an example from electronics. So um, do you have any, you, you have some headphones on your head, right? Okay, ear or ear goggles. Do you call them headphones or ear goggles?
0: Uh, I'm gonna start calling them ear goggles from uh, tomorrow.
1: Okay, cool. But yes, so headphones. Are they are they connected into your computer by some by the, wire by yeah, wire? Yeah. And and what is the wire plug into? What
0: sort of port? My uh, my audio port into uh, oh. into my desktop computer.
1: Uh huh. And then do you have any other things connected into your computer?
0: I've got my microphone and what else? And and this light, this little light. light. Uh huh.
1: And how does it? What what sort of connection does it have into the computer? What port is it connecting into? Uh, all USB that that USB device is gonna um, uh, connect into your computer no matter what, it's gonna work, right? Um, and, and that's because there's a standard, the USB standards. Where do those come from? Intel? Nope, <laughs> good, 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 good. Do, do they come from a for-profit corporation? No, they do not. No? They do not. They come from a public benefit charity called the Universal Serial Bus Consortium, which is a which is a professionally staffed, pre-competitive organization that is supported by industry, but by pre-competitive, I mean, it's not controlled by any one for-profit corporation and it develops and maintains and certifies people's capacity, corporations capacity to implement the USB standards. So so, so now check that out. Now, I would guess most people have never heard of the Universal Serial Bus Consortium. It's a critical part of the, the framework within which electronics is maturing, right? And we all benefit from it. And so, and so you know, like a for-profit corporation might get all the headlines, right because like where the money is and where the jobs are most of the jobs right um, but look at that look into that usb consortium and you know like their budget might be a thousand times smaller a million times smaller but their leverage and their 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 impacts are massively scaled because they're they're creating power and benefit through the for profit corporations so when when you think about something as big as synthetic biology and how it has to scale in a way that enables planetary wide flourishing and other things. It's not, it, it's a structural mistake to say it's only going to be one type of way of organizing people. It's only going to be the for-profit corporation. Ah, uh-uh. Like each way of organizing people has a strength and a, and a vulnerability for profit corporation money, organize people with money. Where do you get the money? Public benefit charity, organize people with a dream. You got to beg for the money. That's the vulnerability, right? Superpower of the government. You can bring people together, and promulgate information if you choose to use that power. Vulnerability of the government, especially in a liberal democracy, inefficient at getting anything done. And that's on purpose because the government was too good at getting things done. It would oppress the citizens, right? People come out, oh, the government's inefficient. No, that's a feature in a liberal democracy for most things, right? But the superpower is wow, like, hey everybody, pay attention to what the president's saying. Right? Like people, most people are like, okay, right. So isn't that, isn't that interesting? The superpower of the government. Superpower of academia. People can be idiosyncratic and individualistic and, and like, oh my gosh, look, I'm just gonna do my own thing. You know what the, the weakness of academia is? Everybody's idiosyncratic and individualistic. It's like trying to organize cats, right? Forget it, you're not gonna do it. But but now come back to synthetic biology and your question. It's such a big topic and the importance of synthetic biology is so massive and diverse. The best thing to do is to recognize these ways of organized people as part of an organizational ecosystem, and, and we need all of it, and we need all of it working really well, not just alone, but together, right? And I think, I think the tiny example of, of plug-and-play electronics is a, is a fine lesson. Um, now, there's also things to be mindful of, right? Because if all that ever happens is one sector gets developed, like the, the for-profit corporation quadrant gets developed, but the government doesn't, right or the public benefit charities don't then it's going to be an imbalanced ecosystem and overall it's going to be unhealthy it's not going to it's not going to work as well and it's also just not going to be it's not going to be healthy right it's not going to be good i think the other thing to say is there's a lot of for an emerging technology there's always a question in the for-profit sector of um, the relationship with money you know like does your organization have a plan as a, as a for-profit corporation to have a viable relationship with money And regardless of what sector you're in, and and you've got to figure that out, with an emerging technology, there's always, call it market dynamics. I think of it as experiments, you know, like when is the right time to operate a certain type of business? And so I'll give you, let's use Ginkgo as an example. Zymergen's a fine example too. Um, But but so Ginkgo as an example is hypothesizing. I'll use the language of an academic to describe Ginkgo. Ginkgo is hypothesizing that the time is right in the marketplace to create a horizontal platform where people come to Ginkgo and say, I'd like an organism that does this. And Ginkgo says, here you go. And that's it, right? Like that's the nature of the transaction. It's a business to business transaction. Historically in biotechnology, there haven't been platforms like that. Instead, people would um, say, I have an idea for a product I want to bring to market and i'm going to i'm going to own that all the way from the idea to the prototyping of the biology the strain and whatever it's bringing it to market that's called a vertical and and we know that business architecture works right so so there's a hypothesis implicit in Ginkgo that they can carve out a platform horizontal across many many verticals and and support that will that work as a for-profit corporation we don't know yet they're running the experiment i think i think they've got a well-designed experiment but we'll see
0: and I think uh, coming back to the vertical and horizontal like just I think two days ago, there was the article in front of me where Bolt threads to, le- the title of the article is Bolt Threads to Leverage Ginkgo Bioworks Platform for Commercial Strain Optimization of Beta-Cell Protein. So I think that's, yeah, falling on. Exactly that's evidence
1: it. of that. But now, yeah, now, but let's just use that as an example and, and unpack it a little bit more. For for that to be healthy within the for-profit sector overall, Ginkgo has to be able to deliver an, up, up, an improved strain. I have, no, I have no doubt that it can do that. But what does BALT have to be able to do? BALT has to be able to take that biology and turn it into a manufacturing process that not only makes the monomer or polymer in a fermenter or VAT, but then does all the downstream material science, right? And and manufacturing to turn it into fiber, to turn it into products, to turn it into things people love and buy. Um, so I think, wasn't there a iGem team from a, a high school in China? Was it- um, Yeah, I- I- I'd have been-
0: Great Bay, uh, Great Bay, yeah, Great Bay or twenty nine, eighteen,
1: nineteen. I remember <gasps> sitting in the room at the Heinz Convention Center when they were presenting in the finals on the main stage. One of the things that was so amazing about that iGEM team was they were working on colored silk proteins, if I remember. And gosh, they were so impressive, in part because of the synthetic biology they were doing, but also because they were working on it's like, how are we gonna, how are we gonna spin the fibers? How are we gonna? How are we gonna turn this into something that's an actually useful product, as opposed to something which is just an academic demonstration? And what I would, you know, like a lot of synthetic biology work in academia um, could be criticized as like stupid bacteria trick, like oh <laughs> look at this thing, we got the bacteria to do, right? And, and of course, in terms of learning, that's a great thing to do. So I don't mean to dismiss stupid bacteria tricks; they can be wonderfully smart. Um, but but the neat thing about the Great Bay iGEM team from a couple of years ago is they were like, not only are we getting the microbe to do this stuff, but then we're thinking about the material science, we're thinking about the manufacturing, we're thinking about making this a real thing in the world that somebody, somebody could benefit from. And so coming back to the Ginkgo-Balt example, Ginkgo's got to do its stuff as a platform, but for Ginkgo to flourish, BALT has to be successful in everything that's downstream of the biology. Right? Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, that that makes perfect sense. And so,
1: and so one of the open questions is. You know, it's like, well, well, can Ginkgo do the work that they can do? I have no doubt Ginkgo can do the work, right? You know, they got they're good people, amazing people, good bioworks. But, but like that bio work in Boston doesn't solve everything else, right? And so, and so, getting the scaling of everything else is going to be critical for Ginkgo's success. And this this is why I frame it as an experiment in the marketplace. Like, is the mark? I have no doubt there's going to be horizontal platforms. You know, we see this in more mature technology sectors like like electronics. Um, you know, but it's like, is is did Ginkgo start their company and go for the platform model at the right time? Or did they do it 20 years too early, five years too early. You know, like Am- Amorous, you could say, like they built an amazing platform, rapid yeast strain engineering rise, the automated strain engineering platform. It's unbelievable. That went towards verticals. They couldn't platformatize it. You know, Zymergen built a platform and, and then pivoted to vertical right and they may or may not survive that transition they probably will but it's going to be it's messy obviously maybe ginkgo started at the right time and has the better business model I, I think i think they have obvious improvements over anybody else in terms of how they'd structured their experiment um and and so i like their chances more than anything i've seen before and whoever gets it right first is going to be in a good position but you know let's let the experiment run
0: you, you've already i guess touched on this in the, in the past 15 20 minutes but what kind of i guess cultural, political, and economic systems would enable Sinbai development in the years ahead.
1: Yeah, I mean let's let's link it back to our, our conversation about for-profit corporations. There's a critical role for the public to play and the government to play all over the world. If if you think I mean another way of saying it is we were talking about imbalancing across the sectors, right? If only the for-profit sector is investing in synthetic biology then there'll be a waiting towards only for profit interests in the manifestation of synthetic mm-hmm. biology. If the public is investing in synthetic biology, then the public interests can be represented in the manifestation of synthetic biology. A healthy society is going to need balancing of interests between the for profit interests of capital and the private, uh, public interests of the culture and society. And, and so there's a critical, critical need for uh, governments to, to figure out what their synthetic biology strategies are and to invest. Um, and and so, I, I honestly think coming back to your blind spot question, that's the biggest blind spot. I think the biggest blind spot is the idea that mm-hmm. that um, you know a neoliberal order, which says the marketplace will figure it out, right? Only, is gonna lead to actually a hindered development of the positive impacts, and it's gonna lead to um, pretty risky situations where only private interests get represented. So so for example, like one of the superpowers of the marketplace is it allows for unfettered entrepreneurship. But oftentimes what gets missed in that frame is looking ahead into the collective future and saying, what do we wish for and what responsibility do we have for making sure we're, we're, we're heading in the right direction and getting to the future we want. The cultural tribe of the neoliberal marketplace abdicates a certain type of responsibility for the future. This is one of its great powers. It's like just just be entrepreneurial right now, right? And so it's unfettered, like unbelievably powerful, but it has this blind spot. And so the public interest, right, has to fill in. It's like if 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 the government doesn't have a strategy for DNA, like what do we want to how do we how do we instantiate our political values in the technologies of reading and writing DNA? If if there's not an answer to that, well we're not going to get those we're just going to get whatever happens by default. And I want to I want to double down on this because in an emerging technology and synthetic biology in particular, not only do you have the cultural tribe of the marketplace, go go go, growth, economic growth, and whatnot, you also have the cultural tribe of Moore's law, that tools make better tools, make better tools, make better tools, make better tools, and this exponential increase in technical capacities. Okay, so, so whenever you have an exponential emerging technology trend, a, a lot of times there's this, well, all the time there's this pressure to say, we gotta make sure we're keeping up. Gotta make sure we're keeping up with, with, with the other person, the other country. And, and that's because if you fall behind a little bit on this exponential ramp, it's all, even harder to catch up. And, and so like it leads to very interesting phrases, right? It's like, if you're not part of the steamroller, you're part of the road. Like you want to be on the front of that emerging technology trend. It's not. They're not. Nobody's. Those. Those are. Those are like real statements that have like a lot of importance to them. Um, but note that what's in that culture. What's in that culture is a. W- where are we going? Impossible to know. Impossible to know because it's accelerating and, and we can't possibly predict what. That, that's another subtle abdication of responsibility, right? And so and so both the you know the liberal marketplace and the exponential. Those two cultures synergize with respect to abdication of responsibility for the future. And I'm not saying individually, people don't care about the future. I'm just saying collectively, there's this hidden cost in the culture. And, and I'm also not saying these aren't incredibly powerful cultures with, that we have to celebrate and support. And and as soon as you start talking about what our culture is, that's where I think, you know, you, you know like we inherit these things and, and that's where the blind spots truly emerge. So I, I would, I, I certainly wish for um, coherent, coalitions to uh, advance and support and wrestle with and debate the public interest as it relates to synthetic biology and what the public investment should be. Anybody listening to this, does your country have a strategy for DNA? Does Does your municipality or state or nation recognize that deoxyribonucleic acid is the industrial polymer of the 21st century? It is the most important strategic polymer ever for the foreseeable future that I know of. And so that means that means you and your town and your family and your municipality and your nation and your region and, and your nation and the world need to have a strategy for DNA and needs to be a public strategy for DNA.
0: I guess at the core of SB is designing DNA. And I actually think deep learning will have a really big impact on DNA design.
1: Oh, without a doubt. I mean, yeah, the, I think the, the DeepMind uh, team and um, and AlphaFold two, their work to predict structures uh, for all human proteins and the proteins of twenty other organisms, and I believe by um, October of this year, they're representing um, they're going to have every uh, peptide sequence in the database uh, folded. I mean, that is a gobsmacking result. Okay, so so like this happened. This actually happened while we were teaching Introduction to Bioengineering at Stanford this summer. It released. And, and believe it or not, that week, um, we were talking about ribbon diagrams for proteins and folding and stuff like that. And like, literally this appears. So we just worked it into the class for the week. And the day it happened, um, I was I was learning about it in the hour before class and somebody had a, um, a Google Sheet interface to the code they had gotten off of GitHub. In the 20 minutes before class, on my laptop computer, I predicted the fold of a ribosomal protein. Like, it's just, it's a... I, I love mean, it. Amazing, right? And so
0: yeah.
1: and so like we just gave it to all the first year undergraduates at Stanford in the class. Like, check this out, right? Like this is like yesterday this was not true, and now it's true. Now, of course, everybody, you know, harps at the limitations of the tool. It's not perfect, and so it's way better than not existing, right? Like it's <laughs> so I, I think I think that um, you know, um, I don't know if I'm on the ML AI bandwagon, the machine learning artificial intelligence <laughs> bandwagon, but but that definitely um that definitely uh, nudged me a lot towards, towards that bandwagon. I want to come back and talk about, so I look forward to more of that, right? Um, I, I want to come back and talk about something you mentioned. And it, it's, it's um, a linkage back to um, design, build, test, learn, or design, build test, the way this has been developed in industry and, and in the, and in the biofabs and the biofoundries, this global biofoundry Alliance, which I like, I love all this stuff. It actually um, is a very narrow representation of the ideas articulated in 2003. And, and so I'd encourage people to go track down the 2003 synthetic biology study, which is a free download from the MIT DSpace library. And, and you'll see that's where we're building on the ideas from an earlier report on cellular computing that's also there from 1996. But but in, there's a subtlety that's totally missed now. Um, so we're saying, yeah, get better at DNA synthesis so you can separate design and build. Get better at standards so you can coordinate labor. Get better at abstraction for managing complexity. And you know, at the core of the engineering cycle, there's design build tests and learning, but the subtlety of the recommendations in the early days of SB was not blindly just go around SB tests like more, more, high throughput, more, like, no, that's, that's actually not what we were saying right? What we were saying is, disaggregate the workflow, coordinate the labor, and refine the living materials themselves so they're more composable. Get smarter at going around that workflow. All right. Now, how do you do that? That's actually really hard. And for-profit corporations aren't very good at doing that fundamental scientific research. And so what you see is when the private capital jumps on a space, they take whatever the fundamental understanding is and the fundamental tools are, and they just use money to organize that and and like do as much as that as we can right make a business of it and so that's what we've got you know it's like why let's let's use ginkgo as a positive example again why do they need such a big bioworks why do they need five of them like why can't they just get the design for the organism right the first time why instead do they have to do an edisonian tinker and test approach and high throughputize it and make it more affordable than anything else i mean. Their advantage. This is observational; it's not a critique. But but the reason they have to do that is because they've gone to they've gone to scale with the fundamental science and technology uh, that exists. And so, huh, right? And and so, just I just want to really point out that 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 this mantra of DBTL design, build, test, learn is kind of brain dead. Or to be more fair, it's one dimensional and it really misses the point. And if you go back and study the fundamentals of the ideas underlying SB from an engineering workflow perspective, you can see there's a richness of opportunity that, that has to be supported by public investment in fundamental science um, and engineering. So for what that's worth.
0: Before we end this episode, I wanted to ask Drew a more research-related question about engineering biology with evolution. How do we learn to harness evolution when engineering biology? Will it require a bit of a paradigm shift for us to get there? Like synthetic biologists are always trying to characterize and standardize. How do we you know, design, predict and measure for evolutionary potential? I know this is a really broad question, and, but I, I thought this was quite interesting.
1: It's a super important question. And I, the first thing I'd say is evolution and design are perfect partners and complementary. And I'm saying that at the outset because there's a tendency to see them in opposition. Frances Arnold of Caltech long ago, I'll try and remember and paraphrase, uh, she had a great saying, and again, I'm just I'm trying to get it right from memory, but, but it basically is, let your mind imagine, let, let you be the author and, and express your intention and wishes to the extent you're able, and then let evolution be your editor you know so so it's like it's the the amazing uh you know mystery of the human mind and our capacities to imagine what might be and to come up with the idea and like get in the ballpark right but then let's use let's use evolution francis would say as our partner to allow us to get to the working solution together so so human ingenuity human intention human design computer aided human design all great but but evolution appears as a partner right and and obviously uh, the Swedish and others recognize Francis, right, for for her work in directing evolution in this way with the Nobel Prize and other other recognitions. And so I think she's right, you know, just to just to like state the obvious. But the, the important thing to, to and I think this is well established, but but it, but a lot of times if you're a student learning about this stuff, maybe you come up through the tribalism of evolution or maybe you come up through the tribalism of engineering and, and you don't learn about the other tribe until you're a teenager intellectually, so to speak. And, and it's like, oh my God, there's this other tribe. They're like, think, they think differently. That's a mistake, right? That, that I really wish for everybody to see uh, design and evolve together. Um, and, and Francis and others have, have nicely demonstrated that. I, and I also would say this is still pretty young that when you make a you know, mutated library of a protein or something like that, you know, and then do screening and selection. It all depends on how sophisticated the screens and selections are that can be implemented. And so, you know, it's like, I, I'm pretty confident anybody here could imagine how to implement a screen or a selection for a DNA binding protein, right? And and how to scale that. But, but could you implement a selection for um, an oscillator, a, a cellular genetic system that's going up and down over time? You're like, oh, wasn't that, isn't that interesting? Well, that would be, I think we could do it, but it'd be more complicated, right? We'd have to have a dynamic selection scheme, right? And so just as one example, thinking about how to improve our capacity to implement screens and selections in support of, of, of allowing evolution to partner with us and be our editor even more powerfully, right, is, is going to just fantastic opportunity, you know, in the same way that, that, you know, like a human, we might imagine or design a molecule and then evolution is going to tune it up for us you know, recognize that the rational design to construct more sophisticated screens and selections can help evolution do more for us, right? So if we really engage in both directions, there's this symmetry of rational thinking and design being benefited by evolution and rational thinking and design benefiting evolution, right? By, by implementing more sophisticated platforms for screening and selection. There's one other thing of this I wanna highlight that's, that's still different. The, the natural biology we inherit and are part of on this planet appears to have evolved to particularly enable evolving, right? Uh, that and, and this is overstating a little bit, but I, it's the easiest way to remember it. Biology has evolved to evolve. What that means is there's an opportunity in synthetic biology or SB in particular, there's an opportunity to remake biology to have different evolutionary properties. And, and so I'll give you a fun example. You know, like my academic lab, we always try and overshoot and, and like see how far we can go. So so we have a I'll just give you a fun example from from John Kaya's work in, in our lab at Stanford. We've been asking, could you design a genetic code in which every point mutation would be deleterious, regardless of the system encoded? Right. Like, could you could you just make a what we would call a fail safe genetic code if there's a mutation it gets selected against? and we we think that the natural genetic code is not like that right you know like the natural genetic code 24 of the uh 20 25% of the point mutations in open reading frames for proteins are synonymous they don't change the amino acid it's very permissive right but but john uh, in a paper we published in 2019 hypothesized a code in which every point mutation would land on a null codon and therefore, the ribosome would be hindered in translation elongation, and therefore, it should be slightly deleterious, regardless of the protein encoded. So we've been we've been working to build, you know, synthetic genetic codes that hinder evolution. And and so not only not only right can can we benefit from evolution and directing evolution, and making evolutionary screens and selections more powerful, like that's amazing. But we can also engage with evolution as an engineering opportunity and and basically tune and adjust the parameters of evolution from a very fundamental first principles basis. And, and SB uniquely allows for that third thing to happen. You can see we're running some evolution, you can hear we're running some evolution experiments <laughs> in the background.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share, and check out our website, igem.fm, that is I-G-E-M dot Thanks once again for tuning in, see you at the next episode.